All right. Hello, and welcome to the Middle East Forums webinar series, Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Mr. Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forums Israel office, join us here each Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes, then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type out your question. And now, with no further ado, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey. Uh, good evening from Israel. Um, as usual, lots to get through. Uh, I thought I'd start this week uh, more regional and then uh, talk a little bit more domestic, what's going on here, because there's a lot going on, especially uh, tomorrow in the next few days. Uh, first of all, in the region, today we saw something it's not unprecedented, but certainly something we haven't seen since the heady days of the Madrid conference in 1991. We saw Lebanese and Israeli officials sit across from each other. Well, we didn't see it because no pictures are allowed to be released, but we were reliably informed that it happened. Um, as we spoke about last week a little bit, we touched on it. There is a maritime border dispute between uh, Israel and Lebanon that's been raging for a number of years. And both sides uh, have a slight difference of opinion. If you see the map, uh, you'll see, again, it looks on a map a slight, you know, a few millimeters here and there, but in reality, it's actually a massive area, uh, especially in an area where there have been uh, fines of gas and oil reserves. So one can imagine that uh, this is a very important uh, negotiations, exactly where the maritime border is. And as opposed to land borders, although there are not land border disputes, but maritime uh, border disputes are far more complicated. Um, it's, it's far beyond uh, you know, the, the, the framework of this discussion to explain exactly how uh, maritime borders are calculated, uh, but it's a, it's a fascinating thing. And basically, there's a disagreement for many years. Uh, Lebanon refused to come to the table largely uh, because of Syrian influence. That was when uh, Lebanon was very much under Syrian uh, influence. Uh, but uh, today, uh, Lebanon did sit across uh, the table from uh, Israel. Uh, partly, or largely, I would say, is because Lebanon's finance uh, economy is crashing. It's having an extremely difficult time. And the idea of being able to uh, search for possible uh, gas and oil reserves could add billions of dollars to their economy at a time where they really need it. And that is why even Hezbollah gave a green light uh, for these, um, these talks. And as uh, you know, anyone who follows Lebanon knows that without uh, a green light from uh, Hezbollah, this probably wouldn't happen. So an Israeli team uh, largely led by people from the energy ministry. It was the uh, energy ministry uh, director general who led the talks from the Israeli side. They went slightly over the, the border. It was under the UN auspices, as we know, UNIFIL's there, uh, the sort of peacekeeping force uh, that patrols the Lebanese-Israel border. Uh, they met in a tent. It was basically facilitated by the UN the US. Remarkably or not, um, for a while, there'd been suggestions that the Lebanese would talk directly to the Israelis because that would deem recognition. So apparently they spoke to the US and the UN interlocutors, and then they passed the message uh, onto the Israelis, even though apparently they were literally sitting across the table from each other. But that's the way things go in the Middle East. Uh, but the fact that it happened 
is relatively remarkable, but I wouldn't go too far. A lot of people started trying to tie this into normalization uh, with you know, what's happening in, in the Gulf with UAE and Bahrain, but it's, it's, it's not really about that. It's really a relatively bureaucratic issue. Apparently talks went well today, again, relative. These are not two allies talking uh, about a dispute. These are enemies. Uh, we're not really officially in a state of war with Lebanon, but we're certainly not warm friends. Uh, so the fact that it happened was probably more out of the urgency of the Lebanese economy than anything else. Uh, but the fact that it happened is still uh, relatively historic. Uh, on the Lebanese side, it was uh, largely, if, in fact, in the end, totally uh, a military uh, presence. There was going to be a political bureaucrat uh, or uh, a, a politician, but uh, I think Hezbollah or someone within Lebanon basically vetoed that. So it was a completely military presence on the Lebanese side, um, whereas on the Israeli side, it was a bureaucratic political uh, side. Uh, further around the region, let's say, is the ongoing conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan, which has flared up in recent weeks. So a lot of players involved in this, Turkey, Russia. Israel has definitely uh, found itself in a relatively central role. Uh, a lot of the um, the uh, uh, military and armed as aspects of uh, Azerbaijan were sold by Israel. I think the uh, Azeri president said a few years ago that something like 50 or 60 percent of uh, their armaments came from Israel. It's not clear exactly, you know, if they're being used in this conflict. In fact, someone took the Israeli government and the Israeli citizens took the Israeli government to court this week. Um, saying that uh, Israeli uh, defense firms were complicit in uh, what they claim is uh, a genocide of uh, Armenians uh, during this war. Obviously, there's a, there's a big war of narratives going on here. But basically, why, you know, the, the, the question that a lot of people ask is why are Israel involved? Uh, well, you know, Azerbaijan is a very important country to Israel. 50% of Israel's oil uh, imports come from Azerbaijan. But probably more importantly, Azerbaijan is extremely important strategically. It borders Iran. It has a Shiite uh, population. Up until we signed an agreement with Bahrain, it was the only country with a Shiite majority to recognize and have good relations uh, with Israel. So our interests are certainly at this point aligned with uh, Azerbaijan. As one uh, former National Security Council uh, person told me, uh, you should never also completely overlook the Jewish factor. What do I mean by that? In Azerbaijan, there is a Jewish community of 20,000. Uh, in Armenia, it's no more than a few hundred. Again, that's probably not the biggest, uh, uh, you know, uh, area calculation that Israel has, but it's certainly probably not overlooked, and, and especially the amount of uh, Israelis who come from Azerbaijan as opposed to Armenian Israelis. Uh, may well have also an impact on that. So uh, that is a conflict that's raging. It is a very important geostrategic uh, conflict because there are a lot of players. There was supposed to be a ceasefire brokered by Russia, which was basically ignored within hours. Uh, Turkey has little interest in there being a ceasefire at this point. They want it to rage. They want it to continue. They want Azerbaijan. Interestingly, you find Israel and Turkey on the same side, more or less, in this particular conflict. But there's a lot of lot of different competing interests in this, and Israel certainly uh, is no exception to that. Um, moving a little bit more uh, locally, uh, it's been another 
you know, sort of a, a, a quite a rampantious uh, week uh, in Israeli politics. And, you know, we, we're used to opposition and coalition fighting. We've now got used to within the coalition fighting, blue and white and liquid, as we've spoken about many, many times in the past, uh, just, you know, at each other's uh, all the time. But now today we had at least three or four uh, different episodes of Likud infighting. We had really literal, uh, you know, really nasty stuff thrown at each other. There was one Likud uh, female MK who called two of her female colleagues, uh, blonde, I won't say the word female dot. Um, and uh, there was a fight even in the, in the plenum of the Knesset between two Likud, uh, deputy health minister, another was uh, someone who's uh, closely aligned to Gidon Saar, who we know is, has been the consistent and constant challenger of uh, Netanyahu within the Likud. Her name is Michal Sheh. She basically criticized the government. Uh, and we saw a few, other, a few other things. What this probably means is that a lot of these people are starting to hear from their constituents, people that they know and are close to within the Likud system, Likud voters, or people who could conceivably vote Likud or previously voted Likud. And I think if you know, they put their finger to the air and they understand that they are losing a lot uh, of support. Uh, you know, we've seen uh, in recent months, you know, they're at one point they're in the low 40s in terms of possible Knesset seats. Then they got to 36. Now, according to a poll last week, they're down to 26, only three away from Natali Benic Yamina. And I think that uh, there's a bit of panic. Um, we, we saw again, or what we saw this week is we saw some uh, a release of recordings, uh, which also was very dramatic, uh, that shows that the Attorney General Mandelblit, which we've spoken in the past, who was a, 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 a personal uh, choice by Netanyahu, but uh, since they basically come at loggerheads because of the investigations and subsequent indictments against Prime Minister Netanyahu, we just heard recordings how another senior justice uh, official, Shai Nitzan, according to Mandelblit, uh, didn't want him to receive the position and even held a, an open case which should have been closed against Mandelblit to try and ensure he didn't get the position or at least uh, try and uh, put pressure on him. At these recordings, I think, were in 2015. Uh, the question is why they were released now, uh, probably to try and change the conversation because the conversation is around the government failure. People are very unhappy about the situation, even though the coronavirus numbers are going down. Uh, the lockdown hasn't been uh, relieved yet. Uh, they're going to have another discussion tomorrow. And on Sunday, the, there's talk of maybe the kindergartens going back. The airport is finally open Thursday night to Friday. If anyone's interested in flying in or flying out, obviously there's still restrictions, but the airport was closed for the last two weeks, almost completely. Um, tomorrow, uh, the cabinet is going to discuss uh, the coronavirus uh, restrictions and look out for a very interesting uh, point. The coronavirus coordinator, Ronnie Gamzu, basically has said that we should relieve many of the restrictions, but we should do it on the traffic light system. In other words, if a, if a city or, or an area is considered red, in other words, with a high infection rate, then it should remain in lockdown. Uh, and then yellow is in between, and then green, et cetera, et cetera. Well, most of the red cities are ultra-Orthodox. And as we've seen before, the ultra-Orthodox will not stand by while they perceive themselves to be singled out. And the ultra-Orthodox, as we've spoken about, is, is a very loyal, 
probably the most or the only loyal uh, party to Netanyahu, and Netanyahu is extremely loyal to them. So expect there to be uh, quite a lot of attacks, counterattacks, and the person who's now subsequently been put in charge uh, of the Knesset oversight, uh, the Law and Constitution Committee in the Knesset, is a member of an ultra-Orthodox party, which has to ratify decisions made in the cabinet. So it would be very interesting to see what's actually come of it, because there has been quite a lot of attention uh, to the ultra-Orthodox enclaves, uh, towns and cities, and how many, not all, maybe not even the majority, but many have been ignoring the rules and the numbers of infections have risen there, whereas the rest of the country has gone down. The other thing coming up tomorrow in the Knesset is the agreement, uh, the ratification of the agreement with the United Arab Emirates. Uh, interestingly, uh, it was understood that there is a secret uh, appendix to this agreement and Netanyahu, after a lot of pushing, has agreed to come and uh, explain that, but only a few, a few hours, maybe even less than that, before the Knesset is supposed to vote on it. And he only agreed uh, to, to explain what's in it um, to the subcommittee of the Defense and Foreign Affairs, which is an intelligence committee of only four or five people. You have uh, people like Avigdor Liebman, Avi Dichter, Gidon Saar on that committee, uh, Hauser. Uh, so he shouldn't expect an easy time because some of these are certain, certainly opponents of his, but uh, it'd be interesting to see if and what is leaked from that. Uh, what are these, what is this secret clause? It, 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 it basically mentions what the UAE gets from this as far as arms uh, and, and that, that's those sort of issues. So that would certainly be interesting to see if that is uh, leaked from that meeting and what it means. And um, it, it's, it seems, uh, given that the agreement will pass through the Knesset, the only party uh, that I understand who's going to come out against it is the, uh, the joint list, which is the uh, majority Arab uh, parties, even the, the right-wing parties, uh, the right-wing uh, of the Yamina party, which is the National Union of Vassal Smotrich, even though it, it's, it says that, you know, that sovereignty is to be pushed off, it talks about Palestinian states, something that they are obviously against, uh, they will still vote for the agreement. So th there shouldn't be any problems in passing that tomorrow. So that's, uh, that's what's been happening and that's what's uh, coming up. Uh, with that, I'm happy to answer any questions. All right, thank you so much. So the first one in is, are the extracts of oil and gas on the disputed area between Israel and Lebanon currently being extracted? And if so, by whom? Uh, to the best of my understanding, no, because of this dispute. Israel has uh, searched for and found uh, various gas deposits not far from that, uh, that disputed zone. So that is why there is a lot of hope uh, that there will be found also gas and oil deposits in that particular area. So that's why it's, it's such an important issue. But uh, to this, as far as I'm aware at this point, uh, there has been no exploration of that particular area. Thank you. So can you talk a little further about the long and short term implications of the negotiations taking place with Lebanon over the disputed borders for oil and gas rights in the Mediterranean? Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, there, there, there simply is it. I mean, there's, again, you have to see a map of it. Uh, it's basically, there's, you know, there's, it, it's a very complicated issue, maritime borders, uh, as I as I tried to explain before, but it, it's something which is, uh, you know, a, a very complicated, exactly how they work out 
where the maritime borders are. There's all these uh, ways that you, you can figure these out. And uh, obviously, especially in this particular case, two different sides have two very different readings of where the border should be. Um, and because of the tense relations between the two, especially overseen by Syria, which used to be a, a very large overriding player in Lebanon, uh, you know, nothing was discussed for many years, but now we see that Lebanon are so desperate economically that they've decided to come and, uh, you know, uh, speak direct, uh, sit directly, not speak directly, as I, as I excuse me, uh, spoke before. Um, but it's, it's very important. But as I said, it's, it's, it's largely bureaucratic. Uh, nothing else is being discussed. There was some talk about maybe they'd also talk about the land uh, dispute. There is a very small minor issue of a place which is called the Sheba Farms in Lebanon, which is called Mount Dov uh, in Israel, which is a, a, a small little part of the Golan Heights, which Lebanon claims is still part of their territory. But the UN, when Israel left uh, Lebanon, uh, basically said that Israel had uh, gone out to the last inch, uh, but Lebanon still claims that particular area, but it does not seem like it will deal with that issue at this point. That's far more sensitive. Uh, certainly in Israel, that issue is far more sensitive because it is a very important strategic area overlooking the Golan Heights, overlooking uh, part of uh, Israel. Uh, but those who expect this to lead to anything more than just bureaucratic talks on you know, lines in the sea, um, it's, I th to my mind, probably going to be disappointed. I think it will begin and end on uh, the particular maritime border. Now, out of curiosity, you said that Lebanon is really essentially coming to the table because the economy is crashing. What motivation does Israel have? Well, Israel would also like to settle this because then it could also, uh, you know, if in the end that it can claim a certain part of this area, then it can also, you know, explore for itself. As I said, these are waters which have, we've already found a certain amount of oil and gas uh, deposits. So there's, there's a very wide uh, hope uh, with some significance that they could find even more uh, gas and oil deposits. And, and the fact that Israel found uh, a number of years ago uh, off our coast for the first time some natural uh, resources certainly changed the game in Israel as far as where we receive our natural for, uh, resources for. So Lebanon is certainly hoping that they can, uh, you know, something similar can happen to them. So that's why it's such an important uh, uh, issue. And also, uh, you know, in the background, there's the U.S. The U.S. are pushing for this. The U.S. also wants the U.N. obviously are the facilitator, but the U.S. certainly are a broker. Uh, Lebanon uh, certainly receives a large amount from uh, from the US, so there's a lot of pressure on that side, and Israel certainly wants to ingratiate itself uh, with, with the Americans, and it's, it's, it's basically, it's, it's a border dispute that whose time has come, and it's, it's important that they're sitting down, and it does seem like there was good progress made today, and I think it will be at least another two weeks before they sit again. Uh, you know, these are not things that just can go on day after day, you know, they need a lot of planning. Uh, obviously, Israel, Israeli officials walking into hostile enemy territory is never, even if it's only a few hundred meters, is not an easy thing to organize. Um, so, uh, so, but it, it, it does seem like this, this issue will be resolved and, uh, at some point relatively soon, but I don't see it leading to too much more than that at this point. Understood. So you did mention that Lebanon did not come to the table earlier because of Syrian influence. What is the current relationship with Syria? 
or Syria is certainly not the Syria it was uh, in the years that it occupied uh, Lebanon. In fact, one could argue the other way around today that Lebanon is a stronger presence. Obviously, Syria is a, is a, is a larger country, has, has far more potential, but Syria has been rocked uh, for years of uh, civil war. Uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people dead, millions displaced, many of them have gone into Europe and other places fled uh, to other parts of Syria is, is pretty much a failed state today. Uh, it's run by, you know, a consortium of countries, each with their own interests, whether it's, a, you know, Turkey has their interests with the Kurds, uh, Iran is basically trying to make it a vassal state, uh, Russia also has its interests. Uh, so Syria is in no real place to dictate to Lebanon. Uh, what to do, uh, but 10, 20 years ago, it certainly was, and Lebanon certainly would listen to it. So the relationship has, has been massively changed. And Lebanon today, again, is still, you know, very much under the influence of Hezbollah, which is pretty much a proxy for Iran. So it's not to say that it's a completely sovereign country, um, but certainly Iran and Hezbollah understand that the people are unhappy with both Iran and Hezbollah, you know, with the explosions that they report a, a, a few weeks back and everything else. So they do not want to be seen as, as stopping what could uh, certainly help uh, the Lebanese economy moving forward. Yes, moving on. Uh, to the extent that Israel has supplied weaponry being used by Azerbaijan against Armenia, is there any information on what impact these weapons are actually having on the conflict? It's hard to say. Uh, it's very hard to say. I mean, uh, today, I believe it was, there was a ruling in an Israeli court where an activist, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a group in Israel which uh, tries to limit, it's not successful, but it, it tries to limit Israeli sales uh, to countries which believe, uh, you know, is a little bit lax on human rights, let's just say. And they brought the Israeli government to court and said that uh, the Azerbaijan, uh, the Azeris, are using Israeli equipment to uh, during their war, what some claim is a genocide, what some claim is ethnic cleansing, it's massacres, I mean, you know, this. But the Israeli court who looked into it said that there is no evidence, or there's no evidence available that shows that the weapons being used by the Israelis today or recently or whatever it is were specifically Israeli arms. And until that can be presented and proven, uh, then there's no case to answer. So. If it wasn't able to be proven, I'm certainly not able to uh, to say one way or another. Understood. So does that mean there won't be any implications of the Azeri drone made by Israel that crashed inside the border of Iran? I mean, will there be implications? Possibly. It, it all depends. But uh, it's not that Iran will like or hate Israel anymore as a result. Uh, Israel, Iran is very aware of Israel's interests in Azerbaijan, and Azerbaijan has to tread very carefully uh, with its relationship with Israel. It, it is open. Uh, uh, you know, Israel has an embassy in Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan does not have an embassy in Israel, partially in a nod to that sensitivity with Iran. Um, so I don't think uh, that, partic that particular event will have any uh, basis for what are obviously very, very tense relations between Israel and the Islamic Republic. So has there been any news on a budget agreement? <laughs> that's a very good, that's a very good question. So uh, interestingly this week, because of a lot of pressure, well, the, this week I didn't mention because there's so much going on, something like this should make a lot of news. 
the uh, Director General of the Finance Minister, uh, Ministry, Karen Turner, uh, basically resigned. She said there's no point in her being there. She is overruled at the political level. She's not allowed to do her job. She has no professional decisions. Um, there's, there's no movement on a, on a budget. Uh, interestingly, the next day, suddenly you heard Finance Minister Katz saying, well, we're going to start working on a budget. Um, and even a budget, not just for 2020, but a budget for 2021. Now, just because they're working on it doesn't mean it's going to be passed. And the fact that, you know, no one else is involved, because this, anyone who's ever seen budget negotiations in the Knesset, in a normal Knesset, knows that these can go on for weeks, if not months. So the idea that, you know, they're just going to write something and Blue and White and all the other parties in the coalition are just going to accept it on face value is extremely unlikely. So again, it's, it's a little bit of a game. I think, uh, as, as we've spoken about uh, previously, I think Bibi is leaving all options on the table, uh, looking to see where the polls are, looking to see whether he can move himself up uh, out of his uh, free fall in popularity. And I think that's basically that, unfortunately, the, the budget is very much a victim of that uh, particular uh, political strategy. So we heard word that Natalie Bennett is in the hospital. Can you give us an update on that with neck pain? So, yeah, so I, I believe it was back pain. As interestingly, uh, Defence Minister Gantz also had back pain a few months ago. He went through a relatively minor surgery, it was successful. Uh, so apparently, uh, Natalie Bennett wasn't feeling well, and he basically spent overnight in hospital. And to the best of my understanding, he's now out. Uh, so it wasn't a particularly big deal. Um, no one really made political hay of it on either side, and we wish him the best. Understood. Thank you. Uh, do you believe that Netanyahu will win an election if it goes to that at this point, or... Do you foresee another prime minister coming out on top? It's fate, it's fate. There are so many ifs, what's, buts, whens. Uh, the first question is when will there be election? Um, elections are not won by one person and certainly not by one party in the history of the state of Israel. No party has won 61. So it's, it's impossible for Netanyahu to win at this point. Uh, will he, would he be able to form a government? Uh, after elections, at the moment, probably because he will still remain the, la the leader of the largest party in the larger bloc. Uh, the question is just what sort of a price uh, a growing Naftali Bennett would uh, charge for that. Would it be something that Bibi cannot countenance, like uh, having a rotation agreement similar to one he has with Gantz, except Bennett going first, which is something which uh, they said that he would uh, demand? Uh, which is obviously something that Netanyahu wouldn't countenance. Uh, so it could be that we'd be again in a bit of a, a, a stuck situation, maybe go for a fifth elections. Um, it's, it's very hard to tell at the moment. And I think certainly it seems like, as, as, I, as I talked a little bit before, it's, it certainly seems that the, the people in the Likud are starting to understand uh, that their particular positions are at risk. Uh, they, they, they're very much in touch with the people on the ground. We had the head of the coronavirus committee, uh, the chairwoman, uh, Shasha Beaton. Uh, we spoke about her before, and she seemed as a bit of a rebel within the Likud. Well, she refused to even turn up to the Knesset today because she wrote this whole post, supposedly internally, in the Likud WhatsApp group 
that she was crying all night at the thought of so many people out of work and the, the, the government and the Knesset is just taking populist steps and it's not doing enough. And she was viciously attacked uh, by other members of her party. We talked about you know, internal liquid infighting and this was another uh, element. Uh, it's clear that she would probably be done in Likud. There's a lot of suggestions that she could join Naftali Bennett. Some say she could even join her own party. And there have been some polls which have uh, polled people and said if she started her own party, would you vote for her? And I think even one poll gave her seven or eight seats, which is pretty impressive considering she's just one person. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that's, that's the situation uh, there at the moment. And, and I think that... Uh, the, the, the people that could are starting to understand that things are really not looking good for them. So I don't uh, think that this happens. Um, but again, the question remains, is it going to be better by March, which is, is another potential exit point. Uh, the question that needs to be asked there is what will happen with the coronavirus? What will happen with the economy? Will we have a vaccine? Will we be at least, you know, largely let out of restrictions? Will we be in another lockdown? You know, these are all questions which certainly Netanyahu and his advisors will be pouring over and trying to think of what is the best case scenario for us to get out of this in the best uh, situation possible, because it's clear they're not going to get in the 40s seats. It's probably clear they're not going to get in the late 30s or possibly even early 30s. So if they can get out with late 20s uh, numbers of seats and maybe, you know, try and take as many from Yamina and put them down into the mid-teens, I think that would probably be a pretty good result at this point. Um, but it's, you know, it, it, it remains to be seen whether that will happen and whether that's a risk worth, worth taking for Netanyahu at this point. All right. Well, thank you so much. Unfortunately, we've come to the close of our webinar. Ashley, thank you again for taking time to update us this week. Thank you. And for our viewers, please join us Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern for a webinar with Jason Guberman Pfeiffer discussing Racing Against Time, documenting Jewish sites in the Middle East. Thank you all for joining us and I hope you have a wonderful day.